HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by White Oak Pastures, a five-generation Georgia-based beef and poultry farm determined to conduct business in an honorable manner. For more information, visit whiteoakpastures.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Issues. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you late and live in the back of Roberta's Pizzeria in Bushwick, Brooklyn, on the Heritage Radio Network, every Tuesday from roughly 12 to 12.45. Joining the studio with Nastasha Hammer Lopez. How you doing? Good. Good? I got Joe back from on tour. Joe, how you doing? I'm doing great. How's it going, guys? Going well. We have no Jack today because Joe thought he just handled it all by himself now that he's coming Jack's back. Jack's over there. Oh, Jack's having a beer. That's fine. So, Joe, how was the tour? It was really, really great. Yeah? Went to lots of... Awesome cities I've never been to before, Chicago, Memphis, Buffalo, got to, you know, hang out and uh, play some tunes. So, yeah, yeah, did you have any of the, uh, did you have beef on weck when you were in Buffalo? No, I ate buffalo wings, though. Yeah, all right. They're okay. You know what the thing that didn't travel from uh, Buffalo is beef on weck, which is you take your roast beef and you, you have the juice, the dipping sauce there, but they put it on a roll and the roll is covered in salt and caraway which is the weck part of beef on weck. And it's a local kind of buffalo thing uh, in you know, that area of northern New York. And I don't know why the heck it hasn't spread because that stuff is delicious. Got to try it. I yeah, try the it. next time you're in Buffalo, you know, look, buffalo wings, whatever, I guess you have to have some because that's what that they're known for because they put the word buffalo in it. But if they'd called it buffalo beef on weck, maybe it would have sold more. Yeah, the, the marketing was off on that one. Yeah, no American like weck. I don't want that. Stas, do you want something called no, beef on weck? No. What about like... Like buffalo roast beef sandwich. Yeah. That sounds good. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Yeah. All right. So buffalo. Anyone from Buffalo out there, remarket your beef on whack. So uh, how many dates did you play? Um, we, it was six It was six on the way down. Then we went to South by Southwest. We played five shows in three days at South by Southwest and then drove back up in three days from, I was in Arkansas like two days ago. It was crazy. Yeah. Are you a crowd surfing sort of fellow or no? 
Um, generally, yes, but uh, I don't think that uh, it just didn't happen. This tour, really, uh, you yeah. weren't feeling it. It wasn't. It wasn't necessarily me that wasn't feeling. It. I was trying to get everyone hyped, energized, and yeah. It, sometimes sometimes it's, it's a little hard. Some people just you know they're sleepy. Or, you well, know, you know what? A lot of buffalo wings. You know what? Up north, so Piper, who works with us at the BDXEQ, he was saying that uh, he got mad at a really famous rapper who shall remain nameless. It was Buster Rhymes, who went to go <laughs> play. Uh, you know, up near where he lives, and Busta Rhymes was mad because you know all these kids were just sitting and listening to to you know him rap, and he's like, Busta was like, "What the hell? Get up!" Because I think you know, and the the you know the 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 feeling up there from the Vermonters is that you know if we don't want to get up and dance, doesn't mean we're not enjoying the music. I don't think they understand that give and take. It's hard for someone to give their best concert if there's not a lot of uh, movement in the audience. You know what I'm saying? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, people don't get it. Hey, look, here's the thing, right? Yeah, sure. As a musician, it's your responsibility to kind of go off as hard as you can, no matter what the audience is like. But the fact of the matter is, if the audience is into it, they're going to get a better performance, period. That's human beings. It's not a record. Not a record. Right? You're not a record. You're a person. Exactly. I I have feelings, too. Yeah, right. Bingo. So, this in uh, Ziploc bags, people. S.C. Johnson, a family company. So, uh, We Pop Soupy Pot, We Pop Bam Soupy Pot from the Nomaku, uh, sent someone who's one of his supporters on the Kickstarter because uh, We Pop's gotten a lot of flack over using the Ziploc bags. We're doing low temperature cooking. Low temperature cooking, most of you, I guess, who listen to this know what I'm talking about. It's cooking usually in a water bath at a very controlled temperature. Uh, and usually those temperatures are somewhere in the range of 54 to like 65 degrees Celsius, occasionally higher for certain things, for vegetables and whatnot. But anyway, um, so cooking. Uh, low temperature with a controlled water bath uh, with Ziploc bags. And this is a technique I've advocated for uh, a long time, and there's been a lot of kerfuffles over it. And I got word from SC Johnson Wax, but you're going to have to stay tuned because I got a caller I got to deal with. Caller, you're on the air. Hi, Dave. How you doing? Hi, it's Alvin. How are you? Oh, hey, doing well. Good. Um, I just wanted to follow up. I sent in a, a question of, a little while ago about um, Pop Rocks. Oh, yeah, sure. And um, so specifically, what I kind of want to do is make a savory pop rock. I was thinking if I used something like isomalt, it'd be half as sweet, but I'd like to salt the heck out of it. And um, what I'm kind of after is like kind of, kind of like a Maldon large flake salt crystal right. that pops. Is that possible? Uh, okay, here's how pop rocks are made. So uh, when you take your when you what they do what they do is they take sugar and uh, they heat it and turn it into uh, you know to candy temperatures, letting rid of you know the um, what's it called the moisture and they put it under extreme pressure with uh, carbon dioxide at those temperatures. Uh, then they let it set under extreme pressure. Then when the when they release the extreme pressure. Bam! It explodes into pop rocks, and so kind of the crystal type you get is the crystal type you get. You can't grow Malden style crystals in a pop rocks kind of a technology. So if you're okay with the crystal structure of pop rocks, then you're you're okay. Now you can you or I should say you could make. I think there's nothing there's nothing that in the chemistry of isomalt. It leads me to believe otherwise. You could make pop rocks from isomalt, um, so you could do the pop rocks uh, with isomalt. Uh, you might put the salt in before. You might put the salt in uh, afterwards in the form of a powder. But uh, there's nothing to lead me to believe that you can't do that. The problem is, is that I don't see any way that you, as an individual, even I, I can't. And I've tr- I've tried, but believe me, I don't think that we can make pop rocks 
on our own. I think there's companies that sell neutral Pop Rocks, which are just sugar, that you're supposed to then mix your own flavors in afterwards. Chef Rubber, I think, sells them. Um, I don't know what their batch size is. There's no reason why you couldn't call them and say, if I'm willing to buy whatever your minimum batch size is, could you just make it with isomalt once? You know what I mean? It's not going to ruin their equipment. You, you know what I'm saying? So it's just convincing yeah. whatever curmudgeon it is to do it. And they might even be willing to put in some – you see, the flavors have to be heat-stable. That's the thing. So if you're going to put a flavor into it other than salt, which is clearly heat-stable, uh, it has to be a heat-stable uh, flavor. But, there's, again, there's nothing – unless you were going to put in something crazy that they think they're not going to be able to clean out of their equipment, I don't see a reason why they wouldn't do it for you, assuming that you bought an entire batch from them. Yeah, twenty pounds or something. <laughs> yeah, whatever it is. I don't know. I don't know what their what their size is. And obviously, they'll charge you more for it. But I have not figured out a way to do it uh, on your own in a safe manner. So I've, so far, I've never tried it. And, and so that's just because of the pressure needed to, to set it under. You need you need to have a, a, a special vessel, I imagine, right? Oh yeah, a lot. You need a lot of uh, yes, yeah. It's a, it's a special vessel that can withstand heat at an elevated pressure. Now, you know what, I, I've done you like a hundred psi. No, I think it's. I forget. It's been a long time since I've looked it up. I think it's higher. The highest I've ever set something uh, with CO two is one hundred and twenty five psi. When I was doing, uh, I was doing Jello shots, and I set them at one hundred and twenty five psi, and that is a sharp bubble. But it's not. But you remember when you're when you're doing candy, the temperatures of the candy are much much higher. You could tr- look, you could try it. You could. The problem is you can't do it in a normal soda bottle because soda bottle can't withstand that kind of a, a pressure, right? Right. Okay. Right. Sorry. Sorry. Temperature. Here's what you could do. You could melt. If you have a Cornelius keg, the problem is Cornelius kegs only go up to about 125 psi. So what you would do is you'd melt out your candy and then um, you know you'd keep it hot. Then you'd throw it into your Cornelius keg, put it under as high a pressure as the Cornelius keg can take, and then shake it back and forth to agitate it and let it set. I think that's safe, right? Because it's all stainless. It's down at the bottom. It's going to be a nightmare to clean, but I don't think 125 psi is going to cut it. I mean, you can look it up and see, but I don't think 125 psi is going to cut it. Cool. Thanks. No, no, no problem. But if you do try it, Remember, check to make sure you think it's safe beforehand because I'm just thinking of this off the top of my head. But if you do try it and you're successful, that's something that everyone would want to know. So please send it on in. Hello. Thanks. All right, Alvin. See you soon. Yeah, uh, bye. Okay. Back to SC Johnson Wax. Uh, a family company. Did you know that? Yes. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, what that means is they're not publicly owned. They're run by a family. So – uh, the problem is, is that uh, S.C. Johnson got back to uh, Grant Aikens because of a video he was doing, uh, you know, from Alinea, uh, using Ziploc bags and low temperature cooking, and said, "Don't do that." At least that's what the word on the street is, and by word on the street, meaning Grant told me that. Uh, so then after that, there's a number of other chefs who were saying that, uh, you know, their impression is that Ziplocs were unsafe to cook in X, Y, and Z. And then because it became known that S.C. Johnson wasn't supporting it, a lot of other people were wondering why it wasn't supported. Uh, long story short, I called up S.C. Johnson Wax and S.C. Johnson Wax, the person who picks up the phone was like, you know, press that big giant, oh my God, someone's asking a question that I need to ask one of my superiors about. And they kept pushing that big red button. I went up the chain, uh, until I finally got in touch with um, uh, Michelle Johnson. I think no relation. I don't know. I don't know whether she is a Johnson from the S.C. Johnson. It is a family company, but I don't know if she happens to be in the family. So here's what I said to her. 
she asked, you know, who who it, who from S.C. Johnson told me not to use Ziplocs? Here's my exact email to her. Uh, howdy, Michelle. I was not contacted by S.C. Johnson. A chef colleague named Grant Aikitz was. There are several other chefs who also warn against using Ziplocs in uh, low-temperature cooking. Uh, and the word on the street is that uh, S.C. Johnson does not support low-temperature cooking in Ziplocs, probably because of the presumed uh, contact with Grant. Here's what I know. This is me writing. Ziplocs are made of polyethylene with no plasticizers added. Ziplocs have a minimum of residual solvents compared with other polyethylene food-grade films I've used. Ziplocs are rated by S.C. For reheating foods and Ziplocs are not rated for boiling primarily because of structural integrity issues, not toxicity issues. Low temperature cooking uses thermostatically controlled water baths that are accurate to within uh, 0.2 degrees Celsius, and the applications using Ziplocs are always done at temperatures below 65C. Um, because some low temperature recipes cook for as long as three days, 72 hours, uh, up to 65 degrees C, some people think the bags will somehow become toxic after that length of cooking. I disagree. Given these points, I would like it, I would like it if SC Johnson could put their official stamp of approval on the use of bags or explain why I shouldn't pe- uh, teach people this technique. Best, Dave. Uh, and here's what I heard back. Ready? This is from. Uh, this is from Miss Johnson. Here is what they are. Uh, Ziploc, this is directly from S.C. Johnson Wax, a family company. Ziploc brand bags are designed to withheld, being held in high temperature water, including being used up to 82 degrees Celsius for up to 72 hours. Boiling, uh, so that's it. So, I mean, I wouldn't boil them, but, and, and I gave her the, the, I gave her the number 82, so, you know, that's where she's, it might go a little bit higher, but there it is, direct. They are okay with Ziploc brand bags designed to withstand being held in high temperature water, including being used up to 82 for up to 72 hours. Bang, baby, bang, bang, there you go. Safety use according to the company, uh, safety use as far as I know. Uh, the one thing that I caution on is that they are not good for uh, long-term preservation. I wouldn't count on them as being oxygen barriers in the way that you count on a, another bag, uh, and especially because you're not packing it using a vacuum. You're packing it using uh, the water technique. But that's good news, right? It's great news. So someone please come back at me and tell me why I'm wrong. Call me an idiot. I'm sure you will. Hey, Dave. I think we have another caller. Oh, yeah? Caller, you're on the air. Hey, Dave and crew. It's Brian San Francisco. How are you? Doing all right. How you doing? Good. Um, so I'm looking on Ideas in Food, and you can probably Google it at the same time as I am, um, and they have a recipe for Meyer lemon vinegar there. Okay. And they say they take cut lemons, water, sugar, and yeast, and then throw them together for a few days, and the vat of liquid starts bubbling. Then they strain out the solids and let the fermentation uh, begin in the open air. And um, my question is, is this is a pretty unique in way of making vinegar. I've never seen this, this, this before. Usually, you know, you have the vinegar mother and some old wine. And so this is trying to create, I guess, a lemon wine first with sugar. And so my questions are, um, what, do you, what do you think of this? And can I just use regular old yeast or do I need special um, kind of, yeast, like champagne yeast or, or something like that, um, and then they take uh, uh, the, all the solids, and separately, they um, lack of ferment them with onions and salt and pepper flakes as, a, a, I guess, some kind of condiment. Right. So, um, what do you think of this method for making, like, fruit vinegars? 
like this lemon and, and, and how much sugar should and yeast what I need to add. Right. Well, I mean, as to what yeast to use, I mean, I haven't studied the effect of um, different yeasts on um, vinegar production. For everyone who doesn't know how vinegar is made, here's what happens. You take uh, some form of sugar, uh, some form of fermentable. You ferment it into alcohol first, right? Uh, and, right. and then after that, you uh, acetobacter takes over, and acetobacter eats the alcohol that's produced and turns it into acetic acid, which is vinegar. That's why vinegar has a low alcohol content, and that's why when you leave wine open, it turns to vinegar. Now, the tricks with vinegar is that obviously if your alcohol level is too high, then uh, acetobacter can't uh, work, and if acetobacter can't work, then uh, no vinegar. Right? Uh, right. Similarly, if you use uh, preservatives or uh, agents in your fermentation that prevent it from turning, that, that prevent the growth of Acetobacter, no vinegar. So, uh, so there's a couple of ways that you can go about it. One is the more traditional two-step process where you take an alcoholic beverage and then ferment it with uh, a vinegar mother. Uh, or you know, or let it go naturally and produce um, vinegar. That's two-step process. Or you could do a one-step process where you convert both at the same at the same time. So, for instance, a, a, a kombucha is uh, roughly a uh, a two you know a one-step vinegar process where you have different strains of yeast and bacteria and different strains of acetobacter making stuff. Now, there are very particular strains of acetobacter, so they produce uh, kombucha, right? And it's not very acidic, kombucha, compared to vinegar, right? So right. with their thing, presumably they're adding enough sugar to it uh, that they're getting uh, the acidity level right. In a, in a regular fermentation, the yeast is vital to the, the – what particular yeast you use and the temperature at which you ferment is vital to the end result. Right now, if you use a, if you pitch a yeast with let's say like Fleischmann's or whatever you happen to have lying around, and yeah. you like the result, then the good thing is Fleischmann's pretty consistent, right? But typically, you wouldn't pitch beer with Fleischmann's because who would do that? You know what I mean? You'd get you go to a homebrew shop and you would get you know why yeasts like you know something that you like like you'd get like you know a, I don't know some uh, like a, you know a yeast that's designed to do like a pale ale or whatever you're working on you know and you'd choose the temperature ratio you were working on and then they would write this one produces a lot of esters at between the temperatures of 60 and 70 you know Fahrenheit and so you'd choose okay. your yeast on, based on that because it's fairly critical to the taste now the other thing is is that you're not ever typically dealing with a fermentation that starts with such a high level of acidity as a lemon maceration so I don't know whether that's affecting I don't mean I'm presumably everything's they affecting have lots it. Of sugar to it yeah but I mean I'm like still. yeah I mean the yeast is gonna I mean some yeast is gonna be you're gonna you're you're changing how the yeast is going to react by increasing the acidity level. Uh, I mean, I'm not, not saying you're going to kill the yeast, but you're going to change it uh, based on how much acidity uh, you're, you're adding. Uh, oh, and Elliot, Elliot Papineau uh, writes in that, uh, what, what are they saying? Stop, just, just speak. He, he asked the question. Why do you want to interrupt just speak, you, Dave? speak. Elliot Papineau asked ideas in food. What kind of yeast for the Meyer lemon vinegar? Oh, so they're, they're asking, and, so we don't know. And ideas in food said Montrachet. Is that Montrachet like... And Elliot said, thanks. I don't know. That must be a, a yeast strain that I'm not familiar with. Uh, oh, I, I think that's a kind of a, a, a yeast that's just used for champagne, which might be able to deal with the acidity. Okay. So, there, yeah, because champagne, champagne must is high in, high in acidity. There, so there you have it. Uh, so, yeah, so they're doing that, and they're doing a one-step fermentation, but that works. Yes. Uh, I, whether or not it's going to make you the best possible fruit vinegars, 
That I don't know. I mean, you know, you might want to do traditional ferment the fruit out first, and then and then hit it with uh, hit it with your Acetobacter. They're clearly also using wild Acetobacter strains because they're not adding a vinegar mother to it, unless they added some live vinegar that they already have to kick off the uh, fermentation. Did they do that? Uh, they, it doesn't say that they've done that at all here. Right. Um, so uh, you know, maybe they need to. Let it get alcoholic enough first, and then and then add the vinegar mother. Well, there's not going to be a lot of uh, there's not going to be a lot of acetic uh, fermentation at first because once you have a vigorous uh, alcohol fermentation going, it's constantly producing carbon dioxide, and the layer of carbon dioxide that's forming on top of the um, fermentation will prevent. Uh, acetobacter from growing because acetobacter needs oxygen. That's why if you go to a distillery, they can have these giant vats of things that are fermenting in the open air uh, without them turning to vinegar because <clears throat> there's a constant um, production of carbon dioxide on the top. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, this sounds like to me a fun experiment. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let, tweet, us, tweet us over and tell us how it works. Okay, cool. Thanks. All right, cool. Oh, oh, one question. How, how much sugar do you think I, I would need to add in order to... Uh, uh, get it going. That's a good question. I mean, just don't go too high. It's been a long time since I've looked up the bricks that you need to add to something. Uh, I mean, I would probably have somewhere in the area of, like, fruit juices are usually somewhere at like 14, 15 bricks, something like that. So maybe somewhere in that range. Okay. Great. Yeah. Right. Right. Thanks. All right, cool. Bye. Uh, thanks. All right. Elliot Pabinow wrote in before uh, regarding caramelized tomatoes. Uh, I tried pressure cooking in uh, my Kuhn Recon at full pressure, which is 15 PSI, second ring, home canned tomatoes for 40 minutes over the weekend. I used three quarts uh, of um, product, which yielded two, uh, two quarts of flesh and one quart of juice. I only added the flesh to the pot with one onion, one head of garlic, and three grams of baking soda. The result I was looking for was a caramelized tomato sauce, but what I produced was more of a nicely flavored soup. Will I be able to achieve the desired effect using the technique but adding time or lowering the pH? Well... I mean, I assume you mean uh, raising the pH. So you're adding the baking soda to you're adding the baking soda to the tomato to raise the pH when you're pressure cooking. And the reason to raise the pH when you're pressure cooking, a la what they do in uh, modernist cuisine for their butternut squash, whatever it is they do in that thing, uh, is to by raising the pH by making it more alkaline, you are uh, shifting uh, the temperature at which Maillard reactions happen to a lower temperature, such as those that happen inside of a pressure cooker. And, and things do get appreciably browner in a pressure cooker due to Maillard reactions uh, over fairly short periods of time. However, tomatoes are an extremely uh, extremely uh, acidic product. So a couple uh, teaspoons of baking soda I don't think is going to cut it and make it more uh, caramelized. Um, in fact, it's interesting. Uh, if you look at – I was looking at the Women's Christians Temperance Union cookbook from 1900 from Kansas City because of a separate thing I'm working on. Uh, and uh, what was interesting to me is that I looked at a couple of their tomato soup recipes and all the tomato soup recipes that use milk in them, they have baking soda added. And the reason they have baking soda added uh, is there is to uh, – decrease the acidity so that the milk won't curdle, presumably. It's really actually interesting. You know, I, I don't have time anymore to read old cookbooks, but you know, I, I, I used to read, constantly read old cookbooks and try and steal ideas that have become lost over time. But anyway, so um, I don't think that the baking soda is going to help in that. Here's what I would do. Uh, I would pre-caramelize your potato, uh, tomato, potatoes, 
dunce. I would pre-caramelize your tomatoes before you uh, do anything. I would just cut the tomatoes in half, roast them till you get rid of a lot of the liquid and they start turning uh, kind of dark and caramelized, and then blend those in uh, to make your to make your product because I think you're going to need to just reduce the water enough to get it to get that caramelized stuff before you make the soup. And then pressure cook it. I think it'd be delicious. What do you think, Stas? I think it sounds good. All right. Uh, see if that works. Let me know. Uh, now I got another question in. Uh, this one uh, is very interesting. I love questions like this because I had not thought about it before. Unfortunately, because it turns out it's a huge issue and I haven't thought about it before, I'm not going to be able to answer it today. But here it is. I want everyone to be thinking about this because it's very interesting. Mark Tinkleman writes in, Hi, Cooking Issues crew. Mark from Philadelphia here. My question is about nanoparticles. I've seen a few articles here and there, and I gather they are food additives that are used in some industrial food to enhance flavor and texture and that they may be dangerous to health. I haven't seen anything that's satisfactory explains what they are, how they made. So my questions are, what are they? Uh, one, could they be made or used in a professional kitchen? And what good would they be for? Thanks, Mark Tinkleman. Okay. Uh, I have to admit, I got so entranced with the, thinking about the safety aspects of it that I, I haven't thought about how to make them yet uh, or what they would be good for. But nanoparticle, for those of you that don't know, are just extremely small and usually very even-sized particles. And they can be made a bunch of different ways. They can be made through, uh, like, vapor deposition. So it goes from a vapor to, uh, to, you know, to a solid at very, you know, at very controlled way, such that the particles are small. They can be made... Um, uh, by grinding, if you happen to have a grinding thing that they can grind well enough, although that's you know you don't, I don't, no one does that is normal. Uh, they can be made, uh, but the easiest way I think that uh, we would ever be able to make them is by making emulsions uh, with very fine particle sizes in it. Then when something's in an emulsion form shifting it from a liquid to a solid so that the, 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 the droplets that are emulsified in all of a sudden become a solid again. So it's sol-gel uh, change, right? Then breaking the emulsion and you get the nanoparticles out. And I think that's uh, how the majority of the nanoparticles uh, that, you know, except for, I guess, things like the titanium, I don't know how they make the titanium dioxide nanoparticles, which are the ones that are used in toothpaste to make things really bright and, the, and, and that are used in sunscreen to uh, <coughs> shield you from the sun, titanium dioxide nanoparticles. But anyway, uh, uh, and I don't know how they do silver, but uh, the one that we'd be most likely to be able to make uh, is ones that are based on sol gel uh, transformations like that. Here's the issue that's interesting, and I hadn't thought about it. I started researching uh, kind of safety in nanoparticles because, to be honest, I had never thought about it before. And it, what's interesting is is that you can take something that is safe to use, that is a safe product, uh, and by decreasing its size sufficiently, you change the way it's absorbed in the body so that it might no longer be safe, right? And the, the problem with it is, and the reason I don't have an answer is that I'm going to have to spend a long time researching this because most of the articles that are anti-them, uh, anti-nanoparticles in, in food, are written by um, – people that I think are biased, and most articles that are saying that you shouldn't worry about nanoparticles in food uh, also come from people that are biased, so far that i found. And so I haven't been able to do enough research for my own, uh, my own feeling to be able to make any statement uh, one way or the other, but it definitely is something that I think needs to be looked at more than it is now. Like, what are these things doing, Right. Anyway, so uh, thanks, Mark, and I will look more into it and expect to hear more blithering when I finally figure out what I think, right? Uh, Peter Hirschman writes in about a name. Couldn't, uh, Nastasha, you couldn't find the email address for saying the comments, so I don't know who he sent it to, but 
here it is. The new torch tip appears to work by radiating infrared. This is talking about the torch that we're building. Uh, by radiating infrared and near-infrared radiation, what makes it similar to an old-fashioned French salamander that was heated in a, a fire until red hot and then held over the food. The French name would be something like salamandre moderne, which would, wouldn't work with American audiences. Yeah, no crap, it wouldn't work with it. So how about Salamander 21, a 21st century salamander? Well, a- everyone knows I like Sally. Maybe Sally 21. I like Sally because it sounds friendly. Hey, Sally, sounds friendly. Salamander, by the way, I don't know, did I talk about this already? Salamander, uh, I used, I was taught when I was learning cooking that it was called a salamander because it used to have like a, sh- some of them had a shape that was similar to salamander, but I, I don't think it's that. From my research, salamanders, because of the markings on them, uh, I- I've had a link, salamander, the, you know, the newt-like amphibian, has had a uh, link with fire since, uh, since recorded, since recorded history because I think because of the markings on it. So it's, it used to be thought that um, salamanders were impervious to flame and in fact, uh, there were fake – people used to sell coats made out of salamander wool, and everyone who sees a salamander knows they don't have wool or hair. But you know, Europeans were some dumb back in the Middle Ages. So like, they would import uh, salamander wool coats from, uh, from east, from, the, you know, from what, what the time was called the Orient. Uh, you know what it was made out of, Stas? No idea. Asbestos! So people were having these like, asbestos things, and then when they would get dirty because Europeans are dirty – Back then, hey, no offense. They would like uh, throw them into the fire, and they would get clean that way. It's pretty, pretty, pretty cool, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, Salamat, Sally Twenty One. Anyway, we'll think about it. Uh, here's hoping that sales are good, so it doesn't become an endangered species. Thanks, Peter. Um, okay, Bob Barriatua, which I got right last time, but probably not this time. Writes back in uh, in response to a couple of things we had on our show before. In response to the recent cooking issues inquiry about food science textbooks, I have found that Fenema's food chemistry uh, is helpful and accessible. If you have a chemistry background, that is, I have that book. It's pretty good. I have an older version of it, and you can find it online uh, pretty well if you want to look through it before you buy it. And Fenema's is available extremely cheaply on ABE Books or on Bookfinder.com if you're willing to get an older version of it. That's how I got mine. Uh, I also own a PDF because that's how I roll. Anyway, uh, also, I started with Modernist Cuisine at Home, which I found impressive, but was blown away by the detail found in the five-volume version. It is well worth the investment for anyone with a serious interest in cooking science. Having spent nearly the same amount for a single-volume medical textbooks, it's a bargain. This is also Mirvold's point. Uh, that if you go out to a super expensive meal, you can afford to buy Modernist Cuisine, and it's worth it. That he actually said that to me, the, kind of almost verbatim. Um, and second question. This is in response. A second comment, rather. This is in response to a podcast from a few months ago. The polycarbonate tub provided by William Sonoma with the PolyScience circulator is not the same tub uh, that the PolyScience uh, sends out on their website. The pre-cut polycarbonate lid sold on the PolyScience website will not fit the William Sonoma tub. Fortunately, any restaurant supply store that sells Cambro containers sells a lid for the William Sonoma tub, which is soft enough, soft enough to cut a circulator a, ho- a hole with a pair of heavy-duty scissors. I believe I paid seven dollars for it. So it's worth it, seven bucks. Although I tell you, the ones that I I get it cannot be cut with oh i don't know what the william sonoma one is if the william sonoma has that little plasticky one that fits on top the red kind those can be cut with scissors if you have the um the tubs that uh, we use that are also made by cambro those lids can't be cut with scissors so i think it depends on which kind you have but anyway thanks thanks for that tip bob uh, it's good to know. Uh, also, Stephen Rhodes writes in on the name. Big fan of the show. Uh, name, when I say name, I mean the name of the uh, Kickstarter thing that we're working on, the, uh, you know, the torch thing. I uh, thought of a name for the Kickstarter project. Searite. What do you think? You I like, like Sally still. You like Sally? And then someone else wrote in on my, on my Twitter 
uh, I forget who it was because I don't have my Twitter up, but said we should. You know what they suggested? Searsall, and then was like, "Duh, it should be Searsall because you like Sawsall so much." And then he did a little pound hash thing saying, "Did I miss anything?" I love Searsall. It's just that you know some of my partners believe that it sounds like Sears Roebuck, and therefore they don't like it. But I like Searsall because does it sear some things, Nastasha? No. What does it sear? All things. All things. Right. All things. All things. Uh, okay, maybe we should take a quick break and then come back with some blistering finishing off. Cooking issues! White Oak Pastures is the only farm in the United States that has its own USDA-inspected red meat abattoir or slaughterhouse and its own USDA-inspected poultry abattoir or slaughterhouse. We partner with Whole Foods to deliver our high-quality meat and poultry from Miami, Florida, all the way to Princeton, New Jersey. One family, one farm, five generations, 145 years. A full circle return to sustainable land stewardship and humane animal stockmanship. For more information, please visit our website, whiteoakpastures.com. I like the way that guy says poultry, don't you? I like the way that man says poultry. Uh, poultry. I like that. Like It's like so, anyway. I want to go buy some now. I hey, like so that. for next week, it's Jack, Dave. Uh, we got a submission for the Hearst Ranch commercial yeah? contest. Yeah. Sweet. Yeah, I'm going to play it next week. Can't it, wait. It, as, as we know. It'll be alarming. As we know, my, my favorite, my favorite grass-fed beef uh, song. Yeah. By I mean, far. It's tough to pick one, but... <laughs> Uh, true. Okay. Uh, Marty writes in regarding his rice fermentation that we talked about on an earlier show. I wrote earlier about my homemade Chinese rice wine tasting like sweaty balls and have since re- rectified the problem by incubating my fermenter with a terrarium heater pad. Huge difference. So the problem was he was doing it at too low a temperature too long, as we suspected. But the resulting brew is still cloudy, and I have the issue of spritz, a slight effervescent carbonation. So my questions are as follows. Uh, I am fermenting the wine in a water-sealed pickle fermenter. Is that better or worse than fermenting in an open pot? Open pot will have less pressure in it, but you're not sealing it probably enough to keep the um, – you're not probably sealing it enough to keep in the uh, – my brain fried, my brain fried – to keep in the CO2. And plus, some air needs to get to it for that fermentation to work, I think, although you know maybe not. So I, I, It's been a long time since I've looked at it, uh, but I don't think that's causing your spritziness. Is there a way to prevent the carbonation? It's annoying to me. No, you can you can uh, if you let it vent off enough. As long as you're making sure that no acetobacter is going to grow in it to make it more acidic, then you can let the carbonation go off, or you could just uh, apply a vacuum to it and zip the al- uh, zip the car- carbon dioxide right out of it, like I do, like we do with the, with uh, champagne when we're testing it. Um, is the cloudiness a flaw? Can I clarify the wine? I tried filtering it through coffee filters, but nothing came out. I have no access to a centrifuge. Whether or not you can clarify it depends on what the cloudiness is. Unfortunately, I suspect that what is causing the cloudiness in your case is starch. And starch uh, isn't very well clarified by techniques like agar clarification uh, as, well as, th- as well as other cloudy things are like proteins. But if it is starch, it will settle. If you let it sit for a, you know like a week or two, uh, it should settle out, and then you could probably decant the clear stuff off the top. But it's not a flaw. If it's not starch, then you could just do an agar clarification. Go on the Cooking Issues website, which is working again thanks to uh, Paul Adams, our buddy. Uh, you can look up clarification techniques and get a technique with agar that doesn't require a centrifuge. Now here's something really cool. I like this a lot. Uh, 
Morton Madsen uh, wrote in last week about quail eggs. Did we speak to him or did we write? I think he wrote. wrote. He wrote. Uh, and, you know, what I said was, please, someone run the experiment. The experiment was, can you put uh, the quail eggs in an ISI container, hit them with nitrous, and vent them real quick to, to make them peel easier? Uh, and he ran the experiment. How awesome is that? So here it is. Uh, he writes, thanks for your answer on my quail egg question. Hate to be rough on you, but your pronunciation was not entirely spot on. Mort- Morton, Morton Madsen? What do you think? I don't know. I don't know. He's like, well, Danish can be a tongue twister for non-Danes, so no worries. At least you did not torture my name. I read through the article you suggested and found it quite informative. I told him an article about peeling eggs, right? Uh, back to the issue at hand. I took your suggestion on using the ISI to approximate the pressure change associated with the pressure cooking of eggs. When you mentioned that the critical aspect of the pressure cooking of eggs is the abrupt change in pressure and not the temperature, my thoughts immediately went to uh, the ISI as yours did as well. Needless to say, when I got the chance, I went out and bought a new batch of quail eggs. I followed the recipes uh, from the last time, blanched a bunch of eggs in boiling water, followed by a cooling step and a second blanching. I then circulated the eggs at 63.5 degrees Celsius for a short period. From this point on, I split the eggs in three uh, in three uh, things. At first, I tried to peel directly. These eggs were even harder to peel than I remembered, uh, presumably due to the fact that they were fresh. The second batch I put directly into the ISI canister from the circulator and loaded it with N2O, followed by a violent venting right away. This time, complete success! These eggs were much easier to peel. The membrane had loosened from the egg white and I had no problem peeling these eggs. This solution is really what I was dreaming of. I think it will, I will be able to peel every single egg with no breakage using this technique. Lastly, I had one more batch of eggs. This one I cooled down. I wanted to test if the eggs would do just as fine when loaded cold. While the batch of hot eggs, I reasoned that no N2O would dissolve in the eggs. However, with the cold eggs, this would make a difference. With my small batches of eggs, I, I think I leaned towards this last batch, the one that was cold, as being the easiest to peel. However, I also realized that I got my peeling technique honed for each egg, so I would hesitate to make any conclusions on this final point. In the end, it seems that this technique works equally well with cold and warm eggs, so it seems that one does not need to worry about egg temperature before the ISI step. In summary, I can easily recommend this technique as a shortcut to peeling eggs. I will try the technique with chicken eggs at some time. However, this would probably not be nearly as advantageous since eggs are easier to peel to begin with and since the canister would only hold a small number of eggs. Thanks for your help, Morton Madsen. Awesome. I love this. Now, here's a new technique that was uh, be- be- that we developed with someone who was listening to the show over over the radio. Awesome. 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 Okay. Uh, Sherry writes in from Vancouver about high-temperature bags. Greeting Anastasia, Dave, and all. Yes, you do have at least one other dedicated female listener and one with a question at that. Busted, Stas. No, I'm busted. Happy. I'm not busted. I'm happy. Dax just says busted whenever you're wrong. He just goes, you're busted, even if he's busted, but, you know, whatever, anyway. Uh, Dave, a few weeks ago, you mentioned the point of confiting uh, in a backpack is to reduce the amount of fat that's required that you cook at about the same temperature as the classic method to obtain the same results. Being a pork belly and pig ears kind of gal, me, you know, if I was a gal, I'd be that kind of gal too, uh, intrigued me. My question is, from an energy use and equipment wear and tear perspective, would I be better off running my circulator at 90C for several hours, or should I put the vac bag meat in a hot water in an oven of the same temperature? That's interesting. You could probably – see, the problem with uh, ovens is that if the localized temperature of the bag gets above boiling, it can melt out. But So what we what you could do is put a, like a like a, a bane or a water bath or a roaster on your stovetop and then cook that one at a – but I wouldn't do it in an oven because I think that the ba- localized bag temperature might get too high and you might get some melting. Uh, but you could definitely do it on a stovetop. That's what I typically do is I do it on a stovetop. But I wouldn't try it in an oven just because I can't get – if you, if you could guarantee that the bag would stay underneath the water the whole time and it wouldn't inflate with air and then the bag would get above the surface of the water, then I think you could do it. You know what I mean? But uh, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't 
try it. I mean, that, and that would actually self-regulate because the water won't get above boiling because of evaporative cooling inside of the oven. So that would be great, but you'd have to make sure that the bag doesn't come up above the surface. But it is a pain running circulators at that high temperature, especially with larger quantities of stuff. And who wants to comfy one thing? You know what I mean, Stas? Yes. Anyway, so uh, good idea. Okay. Uh, David Wilkie wrote in also about the name. I tried tweeting you, but got it wrong. I think you should call it Shimura ASE for all searing eye and pronounce it Ace. Shimura Ace. What do you think, Stas? No, I don't like it. Why? I just don't like See, it. Stas, do you, as, li- do you I like don't know. It? I don't think. I don't have likes and dislikes like you do. I don't have likes and dislikes like you do. Anyway, whatever you call it, I can't wait to buy one. Thanks for asking. answering my A question a couple weeks ago. Sincerely, Dave Wilkie. Okay, uh, Dorothy, uh, I'm going to rip through these like it's some gun. Dorothy Stainbrook wrote in from Heath Glen Farm and Kitchen. Hi, Jack, Dave, and Nastasia. First, you do have female listeners. Another one. Double busted, Stas. I am a middle-aged female from Minnesota. You know, I haven't been to Minnesota since I was a little kid. I need to go back. I like Minnesota. Minnesota's good. Well, I, when I was a kid, I remember being good. We fished. I got a whole bunch of catfish, and no one wanted to eat them, so we had to bury them for fertilizer. But that's that was in the 70s. What do you want out of me? Uh, I have even sent other likely female listeners to your podcast via my blog spot on Top 7 Food Podcasts. We females may not be many, but we are listening, Nastasha. Nice. 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 Anyway, my question. I am making harissa sauce and would like to make it shelf-stable by uh, water bathing it like a jam. I'm thinking this may not be safe as it does not have enough acid or sugar in it. It is made uh, from rehydrated chili peppers, garlic, spices, lemon juice, and grapeseed oil. Do I have to use a pressure cooker or uh, or can I add a ton of acid to make it shelf-stable? Can I get away with water ba- uh, bathing or, is there a bathing or is there a better way? Thanks so much. I do love your show and never miss it. Okay. Uh, First of all, because you are at uh, look, if you if you're working at a, uh, or if you're at a place you own or whatever, Heath Glen Farm and Kitchen. My assumption, and I could be wrong here, so write back if my assumption's wrong. My assumption is you don't want to heap a bunch of preservatives into it because clearly you can kill whatever is going to grow in that with preservatives. But assuming that you don't want to add preservatives, um, the problem. Okay, so let, let let's take let's take a look. Harissa is usually like a, a, like a, a, a like an, like I don't, I don't know whether making the sauce or just the paste, but the paste is a, you know a, a mixture of oil and garlic and chilies with enough water to rehydrate the the chilies, right? And then other flavorings. You add. You said you have. Um, you said you have lemon juice in yours. Now, the issue is that, for instance, let's say you're making garlic oil. The issue is, is there's nothing in the garlic to prevent things from like botulism-like growing. And so when you add oil, by adding the oil, you're making it an anaerobic environment, an environment without oxygen because it's coating all the stuff. And then by doing that, you're increasing the likelihood something like botulism will grow. So presumably that's what you're worried about, and rightly so. Uh, now, the problem is normal heating, if if your product is susceptible to spoilage by something like botulism, right, a spore-forming bacteria, then uh, then wa- doing a water bath is not sufficient to kill it, right? So that would not be sufficient. If, you, if the problem is something like botulism, then you have to uh, seal it and pressure cook it, can it, right? Pressure can it. Not to pressure cook it, pressure can it. Then you have to follow the right uh, advice to do that. Now, let's flip this back a little bit. Let's say that your product uh, hasn't, like, let's say you added salt to it, right? And you can measure the water activity and you can measure the pH of it. And th- it's called the hurdles. So when you, when you, whenever you're trying to stop microbes from growing, you have what's called hurdles where you put different things in the way of bacteria from growing. So for botulism and things like it, typically hurdles will be water activity, a small amount of water. Second hurdle will be salt. Uh, you know, a high enough amount of salt, and a third uh, will be uh, pH, will be acidity, and, and if the combination, if it's acid enough, salty enough, and has uh, n- you know a low enough amount of water, then botulism cannot grow. 
So you can adjust those things. And by the way, interesting thing about your mouth, your mouth doesn't taste uh, pH. Your mouth literally tastes the number of uh, acid molecules that are present. That's how that's how you perceive something as more or less sour to a first order. I mean, I, don't, don't yell at me. To a first order, that's correct, which means you can choose an acid that has a larger effect on the pH, right, that's going to kill botulism more readily or prevent botulism from growing more readily, but doesn't taste as sour on your tongue. So you, you have to look up a list of acidifiers that have, uh, uh, you know, that can shift pH fairly quickly without it being too, uh, too much of an acid perception on, on the tongue. Now, let's go this way. Let's say you add enough uh, product, you add enough acid and salt and uh, also the water activity in the water portion of it. And you, should, you should have all those things mixed into the water portion before you make your oil emulsion. Uh, let's say you have enough to stop botulism from growing. You haven't guaranteed – you've guaranteed that no one will die from botulism, but you haven't guaranteed that it's going to be stable. So there are things that will grow in environments like that, like yeast, for instance, things like that, that can grow in those environments and microbes that can grow that are not pathogens. They won't kill you, but they can change the flavor and spoil it. Luckily for you, most of those things can be killed with a simple water bath. So if you make your harissa stable enough to not have – have deadly spore-forming bacteria grow in it, like botulism, then uh, a simple water bath is enough to kill the rest of the stuff in there that will simply cause bad taste and spoilage. What do you think? All right. Now, I do not have time, unfortunately, to a- answer the last question in from Wintersendo, who is wondering if I could help with a recipe for a homemade soda like sand bitter. This is from Enda in Beijing, and Nastasha will be interested. You know Sam Bitter. You like Sam Bitter, right? Piper loves Sam Bitter. Piper loves Sam Bitter. So I'll tell you what. I don't have time to go through the rigmarole because they're going to kick me off the air in the minute, but uh, I'm definitely going to go over that next week. In the la- uh, and the reason I'm not going to go over that is because I've missed one for like three or four weeks in a row on the BDX ICE program. So here's what we do at, uh, at BDX, BDX EQ. So it is possible we, – we, we in general use uh, – Three main, three or four main kinds of ice. We use crappy machine ice. That that's what we use for uh, our stirring and for chilling things down and for normal culinary use and whenever we don't care. Right? That's just normal ice machine ice. Uh, and my feeling is is that it has just the same chilling power, pound for pound, as any kind of ice. The problems are it doesn't look very good and it can have more surface water because it has a large surface area. So we we a lot of times we'll shake it off before we use it, but it's it's fine. Um, second kind of ice. We we use is presentation ice. Presentation ice, we get our ice made by 100 Weight Ice Corporation. They freeze it in large machines called a Kleinbell. Uh, we get them in slabs. That stuff is perfectly clear. There are ways to freeze perfectly clear ice uh, at home or at a bar that don't re- involve it. We don't do it. We just order it from 100 Weight Ice. We get them in slabs. We temper those uh, slabs out, and then we cut them with bread knives. So they cut, it cuts. It's so easy to cut. You just put the bread knife, slide it across it, tap it, and you can make perfect square chunks that are beautiful looking. That's our presentation ice. They that we use for old fashions and, and drinks that are built on the rocks. Uh, lastly, we make shaking ice. We have two by two, uh, two inch by two inch ice cube uh, trays that we get from Cocktail Kingdom. Theirs are made from urethane and not from silicone. The polyurethane ones that they have don't have any aroma, whereas Eben Freeman noted years ago that the silicone molds that you can buy in some houseware stores uh, make a taste to the ice that is otherwise unpleasant, presumably from the silicone. But the ones from Cocktail Kingdom, we did side by side taste tests and we've 
have not been able to note any uh, flavor in them at all. Now, those ice cube, two by two ice cubes, uh, have cloudiness in them, so they're not good presentation cubes. However, uh, my feeling is is that they uh, make ideal shaking ice cubes because the texture in a shake and drink with a large two by two ice cube is better, as we've noted in side by side taste tests. However, if you add just one two by two ice cube to a shaker, you're not going to get enough dilution because uh, it's so large that you can't get efficient uh, efficient dilution that way. So typically, our shaken drinks, we put a one large 2x2 two two ice cube that's frozen in the Cocktail Kingdom uh, ice cube mold, and then we throw in a couple from the crappy ice machine to increase the dilution, and that's our sweet spot for shaking drinks. We do not make uh, cobbler ice because we don't use highball glasses uh, in our drink presentations yet. Otherwise, we would. So that's it. Slab ice that we cut into whatever shape we want, usually cubes on the order of 2x2, two two, frozen 2x2 two two cubes that we freeze in a freezer that we le- allow to be cloudy that we use for shaking, regular crap ice, and then also, of course, your boy dry uh, liquid nitrogen, which is our other chilling technique. And that's it for this week, Cooking Issues! <laughs> Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.